Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. In last week's episode, I was joined by Jason Brown, and together we looked at diversity and inclusion in the law, the strides that DNI has experienced in the past few years, and ways in which we can all improve our efforts in the DNI space. Today, Jason and I will continue to look at the importance of diversity and inclusion, and we'll continue to explore the intersection of DNI with other areas, such as emotional intelligence. Jason is Vice President, General Counsel, and Secretary of Dyson. In this role, he is responsible for all legal and regulatory matters that impact the North and South American business of this British technology company, known for its superior vacuum cleaners, bladeless fans, high-speed hand dryers, and innovative personal care products. Jason manages a team of lawyers and legal professionals handling a variety of issues involving litigation, corporate compliance, data privacy, cybersecurity, product safety, commercial contracts, and advertising and promotional claims. Before his position at Dyson, Jason served in-house in several roles, including as Associate General Counsel at Miller Coors, as Executive Director and General Counsel of National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms, also known as NAMWOLF, as well as the Director of Legal at Pepsi Americas, Inc. Prior to Jason's stints in-house, he was an associate at two law firms, Winthrop and Weinstein and Ungaretti and Harris, where he practiced in the area of litigation. It is my pleasure to welcome my good friend, Jason Brown, back to the show. Welcome back, Jason. It's great to have you back with me to continue our conversation on diversity and inclusion in the legal profession. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Excited about continuing our chat. So why don't we just jump right in? We have so much to talk about and so little time. Why don't we start by talking about the recruitment of diverse talent, particularly, you know, in keeping with the conversation we had last time in the context of law firms and in-house legal departments. Given all the work experiences you've had and things you've observed over the years, what are some of your lessons learned and helpful anecdotes with regard to the recruitment piece as it relates to DNI? I think one of the first things that I will say, it surprises me because lawyers pride themselves on being highly intelligent people and, and that kind of thing, but <laughs> It shocks me how many people do the exact same thing over and over again and expect a different result. My mind is blown. They visit the exact same schools. Mm -hmm. They send the exact same people. They change absolutely nothing except they tell the recruiter, hey, I want to find a couple more diverse people if we can. But everybody is saying but that, every, right? But everybody is saying that. The competition is intense over these handful of students, and they're still surprised and come back and say, oh, well, I can't find anyone. And I say this, not joking, but seriously, it really is about 
If it is a goal of yours and it's a desire of yours to increase your ranks, then you have to change what you do. Right. Changing what you do starts fundamentally to understand, like I said in the first segment when we were talking, understanding why you have not been successful in the first place, Mm -hmm. what has been the deal. And so I think some of it is, okay, are we sending people, are we going after the job fairs where they are focusing on bringing in diverse talent? Are we sending people to that? Are we actually seeking out opportunities where we can connect with different type of organizations and groups that make us aware of certain students out there that we aren't aware of? Could we do that? Could we expand our scope? Maybe we're only looking at law firms within a geographic area. Should we expand our scope outside of that geographic Mm -hmm. area? Specifically, if you're in a city as large as Chicago, a city as large as New York or San Francisco, there are people who would love to come to those cities or even grew up in those cities that are going to law school all across the country. Really opening up your scope and where you go and recruit can also help. But the first thing, you just cannot keep doing what you're doing. You've got to start diversifying Mm -hmm. your avenues of how you go out and find and recruit talent. I completely agree. And I think there's a level of self-awareness and acceptance of your shortcomings as an organization that you need to have when you do that analysis. Because of course, all organizations are having issues with DNI recruitment. And there's certain common themes across organizations. You experience it in the same ways. But I think people who sort of stop the analysis there and organizations that stop the analysis there without really looking you know, peeling the onion more, so to speak, to really figure out, okay, well, to a certain extent, all organizations have issues, but we really need to figure out what is it about our organization that is the challenge. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I I think that's the, yeah, you hit the nail on the head because there's always going to be comparison, especially within competition. Like our our firm is just like their firm or, or what is it that they're doing? But you know what? Honestly, look at what they're doing, right? It's, that's probably unique and good for them. And so you need to develop that within your own company, your own firm to figure out, okay, what's the best way we can go about bringing that talent, bringing that level of success here. And sometimes it's doing something that is, I wouldn't say is unconventional. Maybe it's unconventional to the way you've done things in the past, but it's a way that you approach the issue the way, and I just speak from a corporate standpoint, companies, when you have an issue that you want to solve, whether it's a systematic change you want to make or a problem that you need to fix, you look at any way that you can to fix that problem. And you're not scared to deviate from what you've done in the past as long as it's going to help you solve that issue. And I think throughout the legal, we, we love precedent. We love, right. to, <laughs> love to do right. well, so-and-so we did it, so that's what, exactly what someone been else done. did. Right. Exactly. But sometimes you're just fearful to step out and do something that is somewhat unconventional. But honestly, that's where you actually find greatness and you actually find great success because people have stepped out and done something and said, hey, wow, you know what? I'm able to bring in the type of talent. I found this pool or I found an ability to go and search and find and bring these people in. Or I utilize somebody on the team Mm -hmm. that I didn't think would be a great recruiter, but sending them out to go out and really talk to certain folks, make them feel a certain way, different than the senior most partner could do, helps the recruiting effort. I mean, those are a lot of different things, you know, that I think companies and law firms need to think about when it comes to recruitment. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's interesting because I think to a certain extent, the comments you just made are applicable across the board for all types of recruiting, whether it's DNI focused or whether it's just recruiting, you know, the future, you know, talent for your organization. I think it's really just striking a delicate balance among a number of things, including, 
needing to understand that everybody needs to be part of the effort and being very strategic about what points in the process you bring certain people in. For example, with all the recruiting that I do for my firm, you know, I've noticed that when we've sort of changed and shifted our strategy a little bit to have senior leaders go on campus and meet with the students, that's like their first impression of the firm. And then, you know, they get really excited to have like someone who's the chairman of the firm or someone who's part of the senior leadership team or global practice group leader being the one there to talk to them about the firm. It not only is it very informative, but it really, you know, sends the strong signal that this organization is committed to this process, but also being sure that you involve the more junior talent in your organization along the way, because people want to understand what it's like day to day as an entry-level associate, for example, being at that law firm, for example. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I'll say from an in-house perspective, from the recruiting aspect, and even I think from a law firm, it's probably like this as well. The folks who are ultimately making the hiring decision aren't reviewing every resume that comes through the system because there's so many that there's somebody else that's doing the screening process. Exactly. And I think it's critically important to involve them in the philosophical conversations that you're having about what it is that you're trying to achieve Mm -hmm. so that they understand that certain things that they may see in a resume that don't fit the quote-unquote archetype of what currently exists at that firm or that company yeah, that's not what we're driving for. We're not trying right. to stay the same. Right. We're trying to <laughs> we're trying to drive some change. Yeah. We're trying to change things up. So, yeah, if, if you see somebody who didn't necessarily go through law school, mm-hmm. but maybe they deviated and took time out to do the Peace Corps, or maybe they worked for a few years, or maybe they started a nonprofit or did something and then go to law school, that may be different from the trajectory of those folks sitting around the table. But guess what? Those of us sitting around the table don't want another person exactly like us to join us. We want that extra, that's something different. And I think from a recruiting standpoint, I speak specifically within house, oftentimes the person doing that first screening by and large does not spend a lot of time recruiting for lawyers. You know, looking at legal resumes and looking at that is still something that they don't do often because we don't hire all that much. So you really have to work and spend time with them to identify Like, I want somebody who's going to bring this type of energy, who may have that type of experience, that thought process. So these are the type of resumes that would excite me. It may look a little bit different Mm -hmm. than what we have, and I don't want you to use my resume as a base or some of my other lawyers, but something different. And I think it works the same. You've got to start from that basis so you know who you're seeing, and then you can probably bring in a lot more of that diverse talent by getting a chance to have them get interviewed in the beginning. I think that's great advice. So let's shift gears a little bit now and talk about the retention and promotion pieces of diversity and inclusion. You know, just as we talked about what we could do better from a recruiting perspective, what do you think law firms and companies can do better in order to be more effective and successful in retaining and promoting diverse talent? So I'm going to sound like a broken record from (laughs) before, (laughs) but honestly, it is self-awareness. You have to start with understanding what is our culture now, right? Mm -hmm. So I get that there's going to be a level of enthusiasm because you're bringing in some diverse talent. But before you do that, you need to ensure that the type of environment that you're bringing them into is an environment where they can thrive. Right. And not just somewhere where they're just going to be window dressing Mm -hmm. that looks different than what's already there. That's how you retain people. They need to feel engaged. They need to feel valued. They need to feel that there's a future there. 
So if you take a truly honest look at your company to understand or your law firm and understand what is it that has made it so that we haven't been successful with this particular segment, Mm -hmm. with African-American males, African-American females, with women, what Mm -hmm. is it that we're not hitting? And being honest with that, that's how you start to strike that. So there's a lot of things you can talk about to ways to make that better. Right. Ensuring that there's a proactive mentor, Mm -hmm. that's somebody who is actually going to take a vested interest in understanding and making sure that these individuals brought in and that you understand what their cares and concerns are. Not that you're covering them or blocking some umbrella as they walk around to make sure that nothing happens to them because you can't learn and grow that way. But, But making sure that you understand their perspective to say, hey guys, what we just did, what we just presented, we thought it was great. But for our segment of our population that may be diverse or the segment of our population that are women and whatnot, they didn't really feel empowered. They Mm -hmm. actually felt the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. Well, why is that? We need to understand that. Like, that's where I think that engagement is more. And it could be mentoring. It may be more engagement. It may be ensuring that they have people that are dedicated to them that are actually walking them through the journey, not just for them, but actually Mm -hmm. for the company and for the firm. And I think people, I think that it's just for the benefit of the individual. I think it's the benefit of the company so that there's understanding of how Something is presented how the perception of that fits everybody within the company. So you've mentioned mentoring a couple of times in the last couple of minutes. And I think when it comes to the retention and promotion piece, we would be remiss in having this conversation without talking about the, I don't know if calling it a dichotomy is necessarily accurate, but the mentoring versus sponsorship conversation. And I would love to start this conversation by asking you, If you think it's possible for people to have long-term success in an organization without a sponsor? The short answer is no. Okay. (laughs) That's about as short as you can get. No matter what you do within an organization, Mm -hmm. you need somebody who is senior to advocate for you. Mm -hmm. You need someone who is going to speak up about you for you on your behalf. That's where you find yourself the best opportunities. That's where you find the growth opportunities. Mm -hmm. And it's those opportunities that lend itself to the promotions, the partnerships, the the successor planning and that kind of thing. If that's Mm -hmm. what happens, if you put your head down and just grind and do the job and do well, that's great. And you'll get your annual raises and your bonuses and everything like that. But if you want to be thought of as an early person from your class to make partner or get that consideration or to be on that consideration for that next level succession plan to be the next GC. Right. You know, it's those sponsors that say, hey, put this person on that special project. Let him or her lead this. I want to see her in this opportunity, maybe outside of the country in a different sponsor is what gets you those opportunities. It's not just doing hard work and expecting that other people are seeing it. Right. So you and I are 20 and 25 years into our career at this point. So what point, I'd love to get your answer to this, at what point do you no longer need a sponsor? I think at that point that I have retired. Um, <laughs> I honestly, it's, You and I concur on that I, as well. Exactly, I mean, for, for myself, not for you. <laughs> I look at, Tina, it doesn't stop. I think that there's a, you know, within an organization, you know, even as the CEO, and you want to do different things and you want to take the organization to a different point 
you need somebody on the board that's going to look around at everybody else and is like, I want to follow this guy. Right. Like right. he's, you know, he's never steered us wrong or she's got the right vision. Let's go into that new market, that new territory. You still constantly need a sponsor to help you do that. So I may be general counsel and, and I may have what people perceive to be, you know, the top spot from a legal perspective within my territory here. Mm-hmm. But you know, I still need a sponsor. I still would want to get sponsorship from my leaders or even from folks on my board to help project me further within my career so that people see me not just as the senior leader with the expert legal advice, right. but maybe somebody who could succeed to the CEO spot. Those types of thought processes don't happen unless you have a sponsor to get that to be a reality. So I don't think it ever stops. Well, I guess that's a good thing. When you look at life, and I know you look at it this way too, that it's always a learning experience. You can always grow more. You know, it helps to have somebody who may even be younger than you, but who has just had different experiences, who's able to contribute to you in a way that, frankly, other people may not. Within or without, outside of your organization. Right. I think that's the key to it is to think about opportunities where you know, for example, could be something like board service, like getting an opportunity to sit on a corporate board. Mm-hmm. You know, that may come from a sponsor of yours that could potentially be younger than yours, but definitely outside of your organization, maybe. And so those types of things help grow your career. They help build your personal brand and those kind of things. And do you're doing things that you really want to do. But yeah, you always need an advocate out there because as busy as we are and as mm-hmm. much as we try to kind of advocate for ourselves and trumpet all the great things that we're doing. Everyone loves a co-signer. Right. (laughs) Everyone loves that validation from somebody. That's why my political candidates are always looking for endorsements (laughs) because it's always better because you can say that you're great. It's even better when somebody else that people respect say, hey, he or she is as great as they say they are. Switching gears just a little bit. I mean, we've talked about the importance of sponsorship with respect to the retention and promotion piece generally, regardless of whether it's in-house or whether it's in private practice taking a couple minutes to look at private practice specifically and what is particularly important for diverse attorneys in private practice to be retained and promoted. Rainmaking, you couldn't have a conversation about this without talking about rainmaking. You know, you've been in a law firm, you've been in-house, you've been a leader of organizations, nonprofit, obviously, NAMWOLF, you were the GC as well as the executive director. So you've watched and you've experienced yourself seeing what it takes for diverse partners to succeed and to be promoted within the context of law firms. What are some of the biggest challenges that you see for diverse attorneys who are trying to flourish at their law firms, particularly when it comes to growing their books of business? How is it different for them from, you know, others who are not diverse? I guess the best way to answer this is, it's a generalization, but I have to make it to, you know, to answer that question. There is this belief and there's this focus when you're a diverse attorney, and I'll speak as being a diverse attorney, to do your absolute best and to be better than everyone else so that you can be at least close to where they consider themselves to be. Right. So you drive and do everything you can. You get things done, not on time, but early. You stay late, but you're efficient. You learn everything there is to know. So you're an encyclopedia of knowledge of the law. 
so that you can strive to do it. If you're going to be successful within the law and become a rainmaker, you also need to have developed a brand so that you can develop your book of business. And those soft skills cannot be obtained by staring at a law book. That's true. And unfortunately, I think what happens, and like I said, it's being very general. Unfortunately, I think what happens to a lot of diverse lawyers is they come into a law firm and their main focus is to survive. And they put their head down and they bill as many hours as they can. And they try to learn and understand to become proficient experts of the law as much as they can. At the expense of early in their career, understanding and grasping the notion of, you know what? I need to get away from my desk. I need to find out who that partner is going to lunch with and see if I can go to lunch with them just to sit there and listen and see how they deal with their client and talk to them because I need to learn that so I can start doing the same thing when I start developing my book of business. I need to be able to spend time with folks that are doing what I want to do Mm -hmm. so that I can ask the tough questions about not was my rationale correct in this memo that I write or did you agree with my assessment on that? No, just try to understand, well, how did you go about getting business from that large client? How did right. you how do you sustain a relationship with that company even though they're on their third GC but you've been representing that company for 20 years? Like these are the types of things that no law school teaches. I've never seen it in a law but not not in a law library. Well, they don't have law libraries anymore, but you know what I mean. Right. <laughs> Back when they had law libraries, yes. I didn't see that. But those are a lot of the soft skills that I think diverse attorneys coming out of the gate don't have that experience. They don't Mm -hmm. have that track record. And it's not naturally available. Like I said, this is a generalization, but I just believe that that's been the track because you come in the door gunning because there isn't anyone here that looks like you that's had that trajectory that can kind of take you along that journey. So I think from the beginning, that becomes a struggle. And then oftentimes what I've experienced and what I could say even the last you know, 20 years, people that have been practicing less than me have said, there is still that tried and true people are much more comfortable with people that they feel immediately akin to. So right. you have partners that may be grabbing younger associates you're, you know, that you came in with that look like them right. to go, hey, I'm playing golf or doing this. Well, right. I don't play golf. Or, hey, I'm going to go and and we're going to do this for the weekend. I'm going to take you to do lunch just because of sense, just familiarity and whatnot. And you're not getting that soft skill benefit that those other associates may be getting because they're not diverse or they have an ability to be, to feel much more connected to the non-diverse partners. Right. Well, this is actually a great segue into our next topic, which is implicit and unconscious bias. Obviously, the conversation from a DNI perspective has really focused a lot on this particular topic over the past couple of years. So making it really hard to have a conversation about diversity these days without talking about implicit and unconscious bias. You just gave an, a great example of how unconscious bias could manifest itself by partners in a law firm, for example, whether they do it consciously or not. I mean, I think it's actually very much unconscious. They like to go and do things with people that are like themselves. That's just one of myriad examples. What are your thoughts and observations based on your experiences on this particular topic of unconscious bias? I think it's probably one of the greatest impediments to the success of diversity across the board is implicit bias, unconscious Mm -hmm. bias. 
you know, a lot of people don't like to talk about it. They don't mm-hmm. like to own their own stuff. And right. they definitely don't like to take a look at themselves <laughs> and see what may be seen as faults. But right. I think it does become an issue. Mm-hmm. In the very beginning, I remember, and I still think it, it is, if we're honest, I still think it's an issue. People believe that when you push for diversity within an organization in some way, shape, or form, there is somebody who believes that that means that you may be bringing in inferior talent. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely a thought process in some people's heads that, well, that's what diversity means. That means we're lowering our standards and going at it differently. And that's absolutely not the case, as it has been proven many a times in mm-hmm. studies and whatnot, so I won't go into that issue. But it, that does become a blocker, which mm-hmm. is why some people don't feel strongly about diversity, but they'll never say it. Right. And they won't support it. And then once again, you'll start wondering why certain firms or certain companies are, aren't as successful when it comes down the line. But mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely think it is an issue. And will once you acknowledge it and understand that it exists, then mm-hmm. I think you do better as an organization, especially from an inclusion standpoint, because you say, okay, well, look, this is an issue that we have. The best way to confront it is actually to bring these folks in and to start to work on ourselves and get a little bit better. Yeah, I went through a very interesting set of training over the last several months where we had vignettes that were acted out by actors based on feedback that we've gotten from a DNI consultant who came and interviewed across associates, partners, geographies, practice groups, and got feedback about different aspects to DNI successes and challenges at the firm. And I have to say that it was one of the most powerful experiences I've had to watch actors and actresses acting out scenarios, whether it was in a review context or whether it was in a recruiting context or whether it was in a conversation of how people carry themselves in a meeting. And it was very powerful. And what was very interesting is that a number of folks, you know, speaking as a diverse lawyer here, the number of folks who at first were just in a state of disbelief saying, I can't believe that this kind of thing actually happens. It's, it's, it's too terrible to be true. And what's interesting is that it's nothing that is usually so ridiculously egregious, although those things happen. It's the insidious sort of glances or comments or intonations with the way things are said that actually, you know, people don't realize that there's an impact and an effect in the moment, but there's also a cumulative effect as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's funny. I have a number of good friends of mine who are diverse and they talk about how stellar their resume is. And they believe that because of their name, Mm -hmm. you know, especially, you know, friends of mine who have from, you know, the Middle East and Mm -hmm. have names that in a way scream out their diversity, that there in some ways could be an impact on them actually getting a call saying, hey, we want to bring you in. And in some ways it sounds silly. Like, why would that ever happen? Yeah. But the reality of it is, it's not lost on me that my name, however common, right, <laughs> as, right. as Jason Brown, probably, and I've seen it where people have been you know, noticeably, either because they heard what my title was and then my name, noticeably surprised, I mm-hmm. guess. Once they actually see, oh, you're Jason Brown. Wow. And almost to the point of saying it like that. And this is wow. this has occurred throughout my career, throughout my career where 
I'm meeting people for the first time, especially now before social media, way before, right. and people weren't tracking that, weren't like really Googling my background and history to see where I went to school, but people mm-hmm. would look at me and would come to like, oh, you're my attorney, your name is Jason Brown, and they see me and they're like, oh, oh, oh okay. I hate that. <laughs> yes, I hate it, but you can't tell me that the reason why that reaction is there isn't because of implicit bias or just how people are conditioned to believe. They've spoken right. to me. I've had conversations with them. We've traded letters. At no point was there ever a shock then, and they meet me face to face. And you know, if I was a strikingly good-looking guy, <laughs> you are. I would Jason. not. Uh, you are. I would. I would feel better of that. But yeah, I understand where it's coming from. <laughs> well, and you are a strikingly handsome ah, thank man. You. You're very sweet. You're very humble. <laughs> Maybe that's why they're saying it. Of course, I I agree. That's not why they're doing it, unfortunately. It should be the reason, but that's not why they're doing it. So our time together, unfortunately, is ending quickly. And I would love to have you back on again in, in the near future to talk more about this and other really interesting topics at the intersection of business and law. But as we're winding our time together down today, Looking back again on all your experiences, what are the biggest lessons you have learned personally in the area of diversity and inclusion? Well, there's a couple of things that I would say. I think one of the first things that I've learned over time is, like I said before, I mean, it always, it starts internally, it starts within, and you can't just go outwardly. You've got to start from within and fix what's happening within the company, you know, because in the beginning, I thought it was all about, well, we just need the numbers. If we bring the numbers and we change the culture, no, no. The culture has to start to shift first. And then you start to create an inclusive environment where it can be successful from there. The second thing that I would say, which may feel a tad bit controversial, is I think that we cannot just believe because of the existence of a senior person that happens to be a woman or happens to be diverse, that that means that the organization fully embraces diversity and they're on the right path. I think there is an unfair pressure on mm-hmm. them to be successful when it comes to DNI. But I also think sometimes we mistake just because someone looks a certain way or is a certain gender that their dynamic and their focus is on diversity and inclusion, which it may not be. And it's right. not fair to believe that they do it, but also I think it's a mistake to think otherwise. And the other thing I would say that I've learned is something that I just heard a U.S. District Court Judge Mike Davis from Minnesota say, I was just at a conference, and he started his speech by screaming, I hate these meetings. <laughs> I hate these discussions. And it was yeah. a diversity conference. And it, you know, obviously, it shocked everybody in the room because he's the mm-hmm. first person to speak. But I totally agree with him. Yeah, I hate the fact that we continually have to have these meetings and these discussions because that means that the issue is still so huge and so prevalent in our society that, mm-hmm. that we need to keep talking about it to get it done. But at the same time, I embrace the conversation, and I think that we still need to keep talking about it in a much more open and honest fashion. So I will say that the final thing that I would say, the third thing I'd say that I learned is that everyone needs to be at the table having this conversation. This isn't a female issue. This isn't a black issue. It is not an Asian issue. It's not a white issue. It is everybody. We all need to come to the table, keep talking about how it is that we make our profession more diverse, our companies, our law firms, and that kind of thing. So, yeah. I completely agree with you. Excellent. Do you have any final thoughts before we sign off? And where can our listeners find you? Yes. So, your listeners, if you have a LinkedIn account, which I hope you do, you can find me on LinkedIn, Jason L. Brown, 
you'll see me there with the Dyson logo on my <laughs> Actually, I don't know if the Dyson logo is well, it's uh, That's where I work. So you'll be able to find me there. So feel free to message me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. But yeah, my final thoughts, just as a challenge to people, I just would challenge people to do their best to try to make our profession better. I think if you're not a mentor, be a mentor. I think that's one way that each individual may say, well, what can I do? Look, I don't care where you are in your career. If you're in law school, mentor a junior high student. If you're a lawyer, mentor a law school student. If you're a partner at a law firm, mentor an associate. There's something that we can all do to mentor someone to help drive and make our profession better. So my final thoughts is to push back to everyone else and see what can you do this year to make our profession better. Jason, you are such a dear friend and you are such an amazing professional human being. I have loved our time together and I really would love to have you come back sometime soon. Anytime you want. You're a dear friend. I so appreciate you inviting me. So thanks, Tina. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.